you're a guest with us, my name's Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. Glad you're here. We like to say, or I like to say, hope you feel quickly at home. Hope you get to know folks, plug in, use your gifts for service for Christ's glory and your joy. Yeah, we'd love to give you a gift before you leave if you're a guest. A little book I've written that identifies our aim as a church. Our aim is to help people follow Jesus, and this book kind of spells out our mission, how we believe that happens, how we go on to maturity towards Christ and support each other in that. You can grab it at the Welcome Booth in the Welcome Center on your way out this morning. Most everyone has memories of their childhood, both good and bad. Nine times out of ten, those memories include some experiences in or around our childhood homes. For that reason, it's not uncommon for people to have memories that include particular pieces of furniture. So, for example, I have shared before that I have vivid memories of a bright green kitchen table, formica-covered top. Actually, my father built the table, took great pains to glue the formica on there. The bright green table matched the bright green carpet the, and the bright green countertops and the dark walnut cabinets. I grew up in the 70s. I also remember the, uh, the formal living room furniture that I was forbidden to go near, a creamy white kind of plush velour something that uh, we were only ever allowed to go in there if it was a special holiday. And uh, then there's the uh, giant king-size bed of my parents that doubled as a trampoline. So maybe you have childhood memories that include uh, furniture around your household, that type of thing. There's one piece of furniture in our house that held special significance for me as a child. It wasn't a particularly nice piece of furniture. It really didn't add much to the decor of the family room in which it sat, but it was a functional piece of furniture that served a much grander purpose. For me, it symbolized the peace, the calm, the rest that every home is to provide for a family. The special piece of furniture was a large black recliner. And all of its significance came not from the piece of furniture itself, but for the one who sat in this large black recliner, and that was my father. Although dad's chair was for him only, it was not off limits to us kids. If dad wasn't home, we were welcome to sit in it. But the minute he got home, we heard this, we were to get out of the chair. It was his chair. We dutifully obeyed. And then I remember crawling back up into the chair and uh, sitting on the arm of the chair while he would spread open the the daily newspaper, right, hard copy back then, and he'd read the newspaper or, or watch hee-haw. <laughs> yeah, I'm old. When Dad was sitting in his chair in the evening, it was for me as a, as a child, much like looking at a king upon his throne. I don't overstate that. I remember cherished times sitting there. I remember the, the sense of rest that for me settled over the household. When he was home from a long day's work and was connecting with us, he was investing in us. Calm was what I felt. Peace was my experience. Everything was as it should be for me at that time. Interestingly, I believe it's those same types of feelings 
In fact, I would go so far as to say when we read God's Word, it should evoke some feelings. And I believe those same types of feelings are feelings that we should experience when reading the close of the creation narrative. We should experience peace. We should experience a calm. We should have this sense of invitation to rest. We should know that everything is as it should be. At the end of the long week in the creation narrative, it's on the screen. We read, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Rest. The word translates rest from which we get the English word Sabbath. Just as my father sat down in his recliner at the end of a long day of work, God entered his rest. On the seventh day, after six days of creative labor, but just as my father did not truly rest when he sat in his chair because his kids immediately began climbing all over him, the rest that God entered doesn't mean that God was inactive, doesn't mean that he was passive, doesn't mean that he disengaged in any way from created order. Thomas Jefferson, one of our nation's founding fathers, was a deist. A deist was one who believed in a creator, but believed the creator was disengaged, passive, separated from created order. That's not the notion here. It's not as if God went to sleep or removed himself. That's not what the rest is that the ancient author has in mind. Instead, the rest here is an active rest. It's an engaging rest. It's a coming home rest. It's the, it's the rest that you might uh, expect from a monarch after taking the throne and being inaugurated as king or queen. The active engagement with uh, citizens in the kingdom the role that he or she would play, ABC last night was revisiting Queen Elizabeth's 70 years on the throne. The rest that's had in mind here is in no way passive, disengaged, or inactive. In fact, it is an engagement with the created order. This means that the seventh day was not a footnote to the creation account. Instead, the seventh day identifies the very purpose of creation. Divine rest. Let me say that again. The ancient author and the ancient audience would have read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and assumed that the very purpose of creation was captured on the seventh day in these three little verses as God enters his rest. That's the climax. That's the pinnacle. Creation is complete and God has entered in. He's with us. Much like my father, 
had come home from work. He didn't live to work. He worked so that he could come home and be with his family. We so often read of God entering his rest on the seventh day as a footnote to the creation account. We're unsure of what to make of it. But the ancient world, in the ancient world, pagan deities were portrayed as seeking places of rest, actively seeking places to rule and to reign and to govern. Theologically, we're also prone to placing humanity at the center of the creation narrative, believing that the climax of the creation account is the sixth day when mankind was formed from the dust of the ground. And while it's true that God created the heavens and the earth to bless humanity, that's not the same as saying he created everything for us. We are not the pinnacle, thank God, of creation. Remember what Paul writes in Colossians Chapter 1, verse 16, all things were created by him and for him. This makes God the focus of the narrative, not humanity. In fact, the entirety of the biblical narrative, God is the focus. By him and for him are we created. The truth is that the creation narrative and the work of created order was incomplete until God entered his rest beginning his active rule and reign, engagement with created order. So important was God entering his rest that he blessed it, we read. on The seventh day was made holy, which means that it was set apart. That's what it means to make something holy, to be set apart. God himself is holy. He's set apart from me, you, us. He's set apart from what he created. He's distinct from creation, holy, set apart. We're to be holy which is to say we're to be set apart in this world for Christ. We're to bring him glory. We're uniquely his, created for his purposes, living for him, not for ourselves. In this way, we're to be holy. The seventh day is to be holy, set apart for a unique and special purpose. What might that be? Let's read the fourth commandment. We're making our way slowly through the commandments. We're in the book of Deuteronomy. This commandment is, these commandments are being repeated. First time they were shared was at the bottom of Mount Sinai as Moses brought the tablets down. The account is told in Exodus 20. Here, the Israelites are getting ready to go into the promised land. He's revisiting the law. He wants to make sure that they understand the fourth commandment. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your ox, your donkey, or any other animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may also have rest as you do. And then uh, verse 15, if you're an underliner, circler, uh, that word remember Moses is now going to give the motivation. Here's the motivation for keeping the fourth commandment. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, because of that, do this. The Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. What was the Sabbath's special purpose? Why are we to make it holy, keep it holy? 
The special purpose was to rest from labor, which means to remember the rest. We do that in order to remember the rest that God entered in. Not an inactivity, not a passivity, not a disengagement. At the end of six days of creation, God entered his rest. He entered his rule, his reign, his sovereign control over all of created order. We rest from our work because he's on the throne. We rest from our work because he's got everything under control. We stop what we're doing to acknowledge he's doing all that needs to be done. God's people were to do no work as a testimony that God was doing all the work that needed, needs to be done. He's ruling, he's reigning, he's sovereign over all matters. Now, in an agrarian society, if you don't work, you don't eat. At least that was the concern. At least that would have been the fear. If you don't get into the fields, there may not be anything to eat tomorrow, no harvest. In other words, there are no paid holidays for farmers and ranchers. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that. Paid holidays are a result of the Industrial Revolution. So the command to do no work once a week was a radical practice that set the Israelites apart from all other ancient peoples. If you're looking for a definition of the Sabbath, it's on the screen. Sabbath keeping is a weekly means for remembering that God's the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's ruling, he's reigning. So I don't have to. A failure to keep the Sabbath, to work seven days straight, to never take a break in the week, a failure to keep the Sabbath is to imply or to outright express, I'm actually in charge. I'm sustaining myself. I'm providing for me. I got this, God. No break needed. I'm holding all things together. Make sense? By the time that Jesus arrived, some 1,500 years after Moses gave the fourth commandment, Sabbath-keeping had become steeped in all types of regulations, the goal of which was to define the nature of work. This makes sense. After all, if the command is don't do any work, then we need to be really clear about what it means to work. And so the Pharisees had come up with all types of rules addressing virtually every aspect of Life, every possible activity that we could get caught up in on a day of rest, they've addressed, defining that this is rest and this is work. Don't cross the line. For example, walking further than a half a mile went from a stroll to work. There were limits on what you could carry, how heavy something could be, how far you could carry it. There were limits on if you go into the field, and you start plucking heads of grain, when does that become work? And when is that just a snack? Every aspect of life had been broken down in defining when work begins and what is allowed on the Sabbath day. Into this reality, a, a hyper-scrutiny um, kind of reality, uh, a litigious culture, Jesus comes in. He enters that world. 
And he actually wants to define Sabbath keeping. So unlike the third commandment, uh, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, it's never explicitly addressed in the New Testament. Sabbath keeping was addressed, the fourth commandment was addressed over and over in Jesus' day. And I want to take a look at that this morning in Mark chapter 2. Jesus is being accused of, his disciples are being accused of breaking the Sabbath. So I'm going to read Mark chapter 2. Verses 23 to 25, just one example of when the Pharisees come after him and his followers for breaking the commandment of Sabbath keeping. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did? When he and his companions were hungry and in need, and I'm gonna, I'll revisit that story in just a minute. So he raises King David. He knows they'll know this story. In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, David, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. So King David ate what was unlawful to eat for him. He ate what was only to be eaten by the priests. And then he also gave some to his companions. He took this bread, this special temple bread, and he ate it and he gave some to those who were with him. Then he said to them, that is to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Humanity was made first, then the law was given. It's not that the law was made first and then man created. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. As we work to apply this teaching, we should understand first the weight of the Pharisees' questions. They're accusing Jesus and his disciples of failing to keep the fourth commandment. Not a small matter. Why are the Pharisees, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Picking these heads of pain. And Make sure you understand, they're not asking them, uh, they're not asking Jesus, clarify how this is lawful. No, they're condemning them. They, they say this is unlawful according to our interpretation of the law. You, you can't do this. You're breaking the fourth commandment. They have all these regulations, and so they're condemning the disciples here. To this accusation, Jesus gives three responses. First, he says, David unlawfully fed himself when in need. And then he says, Sabbath was made for man. And then he says, the Son of Man, and he's, which means me, Jesus, I'm Lord of the Sabbath is what he's saying. And I'll take each of these in turn. First, the story of David. You could read it later today if you wanted. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 21. King Saul is trying to take the life of David. God has told David that he will soon be king, but not yet. Saul gets, uh, he hears this, he resents David and the popularity that David is having, and he starts to, to chase David around the countryside, trying to take his life. David is on the run from Saul. His, his very life is threatened. He leaves town without any resource, without any food. There's some men along with him. He stops outside Jerusalem, and he visits a priest there, Elimelech. And he says, quick, give me some food 
for me and my, my, uh, my men. And Elimelech says, all I have here is the sacred bread. David says, we'll take it. Knowing full well it's unlawful for anybody to eat the sacred bread except the priests. David takes it and eats it. This gets back to Saul. Saul resents the priests helping David escape from his capture, and he puts them all to death, some 85 men. An ugly part of Israel's history that just serves to remind us that God's greater than all our sin, greater than the, the sin of King Saul, uh, greater uh, than even David's sin. David goes on to be king, and then Jesus comes through David's lineage. Why does this story matter in this context of Sabbath keeping? Why would Jesus bring up this kind of ugly story of Saul's revenge on these priests that, happened, uh, that helped King David? We aren't told exactly why Jesus raises the story of David, but I'll give you my best thought here. Just as it was unlawful for David to eat this, this was a special circumstance. Jesus, it might be pointing, wanting the Pharisees to saying something special's going on here. In other words, the Savior's not with you all the time. I'm special. My disciples are special. The work I'm doing special. He may be trying to raise David's special case, eating the bread uh, that only priests were to eat for that reason. He also might be wanting to point out, hey, one greater than David's here. You see, the Pharisees of the first century would have said, they would have seen clearly God's blessings in Israel through King David. They knew the story of David being handed to replace Saul, growing up, and then taking the throne, not acting vengefully against Saul. And of course, we know in hindsight that Jesus was in David's family tree, in his lineage, that he's referred to as the son of David. He rightly took the throne it's an eternal throne he sits on this morning. He's the promised Messiah who came for the sin of humanity. This might be, he, he may just be hearkening back to David and say, see, I'm the descendant of King David. Later on, he, he describes himself as the bread of life. And so we shouldn't miss the kind of, the symbolism here of the wheat being eaten and the bread of the high priest being eaten. And, and Jesus saying, this is a special circumstance. Then there is the possibility that just as King Saul persecuted David, the Pharisees persecuted Jesus, and they're going to orchestrate his death. Just as Saul tried to kill David, the Pharisees do in fact kill Jesus. They orchestrate his death, but Christ is raised again from the grave. While the Pharisees are perceivably wrestling with what does David in his eating the sacred bread have to do with Jesus and his disciples picking heads of grain, which is unlawful on the Sabbath, as they're processing this, Jesus goes on to point number two, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I would think that the means here is there's, there's some flexibility here in your religiosity isn't what God is calling for. The Pharisees thought that the commandments were a means, a means to attaining or meriting salvation, to demonstrating their, uh, their merit. 
He's saying that's not the case at all. The commandments are given as a gift to humanity. Do we see the fourth commandment as a gift? Or have we been raised, and many church cultures have treated the fourth commandment this way. Uh, We'll get into this, I assume, on the podcast to some detail. There's a a lot of uh, religiosity that continues in our day, 21 centuries after Christ was raised from the grave, where we keep Sabbath-keeping or we observe Sabbath-keeping as a means to demonstrating our righteousness rather than a means to enjoying the reign and rule of God over all creation. The regulations that had grown up around the Sabbath, perhaps at one time they were meant as a reflection of humanity's love for God. They had degenerated, though, into a demonstration of self-love. Regulations around Sabbath-keeping became an abusive way to demonstrate one's merit, using it to earn or maintain the favor of God rather than really rely upon God's grace. Christians are fond of saying things like, following Jesus is about relationship, not religion. And that is completely true. The reality is made plain in today's passage. The Pharisees thought that their religious observance of the Sabbath merited them God's favor. No, the fourth commandment was given as a means to enjoy our relationship with our Creator. God entered his rest on the seventh day. He joined us in creation. We pause in our work weekly to celebrate his reign, his rule. We pause in our work to say, we're not in charge. We're not God. He is. He's in charge. And that's a gift to us. I'll give you a little example, one from my own life. Imagine if a husband daily made the bed in an, earth, in, a, in an effort to earn or maintain right standing with his wife. Not that this goes on in our household. Imagine if a husband daily made the bed in an effort to earn or maintain right standing with his wife. That would be absurd. Instead, daily making a bed is a means to enjoying the possessions that husband and wife share and expressing love for a spouse, helping out. Paul makes this point really clearly in Galatians. He says no one, he says clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in God's provision for us, not our provision for ourselves. Having a relationship with God has been and always will be a matter of faith in God's grace. We pause once a week to do no work, to acknowledge he's caring for us, he loves us. Not to try and merit his love for us or remain in right standing with him. Folks, when we were not in right standing with him, When we were sinners, he came, sent his son to give his life for us. He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. And Sabbath keeping demonstrates that. Failing to keep the Sabbath implies or expresses 
We don't believe that he is creator and sustainer. We actually believe that we're in charge or that we need to work really hard to keep him interested in us, to keep him managing things. Jesus' last statement drives this point home. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here's the point. Because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, there's no greater man than the Son of Man. Jesus, the man-God, the God-man, is Lord over this law. He's saying, Jesus is saying here, I am God. I made this law. I can interpret it. I can apply it. Now, make sure you understand very clearly here. He never says, hey, Sabbath keeping's not needed anymore. He never says that. No, he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. It's my law. And he's going to keep it for us. God gave the Sabbath requirement through Moses to Israel. And Jesus is saying that he is Lord over the Sabbath. He's saying that he kept the law. He fulfilled the law. Paul writes in Colossians just how this worked. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. It was Christ in the Godhead. It was a Trinitarian experience in Genesis 1 and 2 who sat down, who entered his rest, so to speak, after being a part of creation. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what are we to do with all this? We're to keep the Sabbath weekly. We're to submit to the active reign and rule of God. We're to demonstrate our submission to the active reign and rule of God by doing no work once a week. We're to acknowledge that we believe that Christ is Lord of the Sabbath by submitting to him and taking a break. I love what Moses offers for motivation in verse 15 of today's passage. Remember, so he says, keep the Sabbath, and then in verse 15 he says, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's saying, keep the Sabbath. An agrarian culture, don't go into the fields. Sit at home, loaf around. Because God brought you out of slavery. God's going to provide for you. Folks, remember that you were once captive to sin. You weren't captive in Egypt but you were once captive to sin. And God delivered you with the mighty hands and outstretched arms of Jesus Christ. That's why you keep the Sabbath. You take one day off a week to say, I'm not depending on myself. I'm depending on Christ who delivered me from the captivity to sin who sits on the throne today and he reigns, he rules over all of created order. He's doing for me what I cannot do for myself, physically and spiritually and emotionally. In every way, Christ is Lord. 
over my life. I'm not Lord over it. So I'm going to take a break to demonstrate that. So let me get brass tacks. Do you have bills that are hard to pay? Keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. With clarion focus, remind yourself that you don't provide for yourself. Now, go to work the other six days. I'm not saying don't go to work. Right, good. But some of us never take a break. Do you feel overwhelmed by debt? Keep the Sabbath. You tempted to play the lotto to solve your problems? Keep the Sabbath. Do you struggle with discontent, always wanting more? Keep the Sabbath. Do you struggle with coveting what others have? Is the grass always greener? Keep the Sabbath. Do you struggle to know God's unconditional love and favor? Remember that you were once slaves to sin and that the Lord your God brought you out of captivity to sin with a mighty hand in the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ. Do you wonder? Do you struggle to believe that your sins past, present, and future are sufficiently addressed by the blood of Christ? Keep the Sabbath. He has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Enter his rest. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray for your goodness to us as a people. Open our minds to the truth of the invitation to rest. Open our hearts to embrace that rest and our wills, move our wills to live according to the rest we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.